Today on Peace Talks Radio, we go behind the scenes of a negotiating training exercise put on by the U.S. Institute of Peace. It's based on a fictitious country. You have about 40 to 60 participants. Each has a role that they play. You have the president of the country to various ministers. This training attracts people from all walks of life, coming together to learn the delicate art of peacemaking and peacekeeping in countries either coming out of or teetering on the brink of conflict. Hey, this game is a lot like real life. you got to build a coalition. You have to have alliances. You have to be willing to, to advocate on someone else's behalf so that they can advocate on your behalf. Also, a conversation with former Afghan ambassador to both Canada and France, Omar Samad, who talks about his career as a negotiator. And of course, you go in and trying to tell people that you're not so different, actually, that we have a lot to share and a lot in common. That's all today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace, or resolving conflicts we have with each other in our families, our workplaces, our communities, or between nations. We consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. In a previous Peace Talks Radio episode, we spotlighted a strategic video game called A Force More Powerful that allowed players to coordinate characters in a fictional country run by a corrupt and oppressive government. To win the game, bring about significant social change without resorting to violence. Here, some years later, Peace Talks Radio's Suzanne Kreider learned of a similar peace game exercise put on by the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C. Now, this game had more participants, highly sophisticated computer power, and was actually being used to train civilians, military, and non-governmental workers who often work in post-war territories, teaching them how to understand the delicate art of peacemaking and peacekeeping in countries either coming out of or teetering on the brink of conflict. We'll begin today by hearing the audio from a short film produced by the U.S. Institute of Peace about what's known as SENSE training. SENSE stands for Strategic Economic Needs and Security Exercise. The U.S. Institute of Peace, you may remember from one of our earlier programs, too, is an independent, nonpartisan institution established by Congress in 1984 to increase the nation's capacity to manage international conflict without violence. It's a question of what you want to do. Do you want to take the hit financially? You want us to absorb these people? That's going to be a security concern. The money that I put into the system is being sucked out to pay for other things. This has to be changed. In countries suffering from violence and war, peace is easy to hope for, but hard to achieve, and even harder to sustain. To help countries transition from violence to peace, and to help prevent violence from breaking out in the first place, the U.S. Institute of Peace runs a sophisticated and engaging computer simulation called SENSE. Over the course of three intense days, 40 to 60 players use SENSE to make vital decisions in a fictional country called Akrona. Better to be doing it here than to showing up in a new country and, uh, and, and pressing the button on real money. Since was developed by the Institute for Defense Analyses. Other important partners include the U.S. Defense Department and George Mason University. Since is experiential training, the best kind. 
participants try different strategies and see how their own decisions interact with everyone else's. In order to be successful, they need to get out of their chairs. They need to go and talk to the other players, to go and find a way to cooperate, to make deals, to negotiate. Well, let's go see what we can do here. Sense has trained U.S. government officials, civilian and military, along with UN, NGO, and private sector colleagues. Sense has been run for participants from the Balkans, the Caucasus, Eastern Europe, and Iraq. You know, it's not a canned exercise. You, you, you can't just press one button and see another one rise. I mean, it's very interactive. Hey, this game is a lot like real life. You got to build a coalition. You have to have alliances. You have to be work, willing to, to advocate on someone else's behalf so that they can advocate on your behalf. Sense has increased interagency and civilian military cooperation in Washington, promoted economic reform and political cooperation in Iraq, and helped leaders of Georgia's Rose Revolution govern their country as members of its new cabinet. Sense is administered by USIP's Academy for International Conflict Management and Peacebuilding. Audio from a film produced by the U.S. Institute of Peace. There's a link to the film on our website, peacetalksradio.com. Our Suzanne Kreider attended a SENSE training at the USIP in 2012 in order to talk more with some of the organizers and players. First, Noor Kadar, who is a senior program officer at the Institute's Academy for International Conflict Management and Peacebuilding, where she manages and coordinates live and online trainings. SENSE is basically a... It's based on a fictitious country. The country is trying to rebuild itself after a conflict. And... The way it works is you have about 40 to 60 participants. Each has a role that they play. You have the president of the country to various ministers within the country, like Minister of Education, Ministry of Defense, um, Minister of Health. Each person has a role that they play within this country of Akrona. It's called Akrona. And they have, they have their own goals and objectives that they're trying to achieve within their role. And each person is given a role that they read that only they have privy to that information that other people do not know what their goals and interests are. But everybody is aware about where the country is at the time that they're entering into this country and what is going on in terms of its economy, in, in terms of its resources, what do they need to do to try to help them improve their situation and get them to a, um, a functioning economy that is prosperous and that is able to um, move forward. They have different issues that they deal with in terms of where their resources are and how they can allocate their resources. They deal with issues like displaced um, people that have come from the country, that either they're displaced within the country or outside the country that they're coming in. They have issues of um, where do they allocate their resources for the education. When I was observing the sense simulation, there was a moment where somebody said, oh, we're having a press conference. And the I believe it was the president of the country uh, stepped up to the microphone and he fired two of his ministers. Now, is that scripted or does he just decide to do that as part of his role in the simulation? That specific incident was not scripted. It was not part of his role, but um, we have many times that the participants can choose to play um, whatever 
or take whatever actions that they feel it would help them in their role. And in that instance, the president felt that he had to take such action due to the um, actions of the minister, and he felt that that was the way he was going to deal with his situation. So it, it was a it was an interesting um, reaction from him, and we we always get certain um, surprises within the the simulations due to d different people's actions and the way they deal with conflicts and the way they deal with their situations and problems, which makes it a very interesting thing because every simulation that we've run, we have different outcomes and different surprises and different um, situations that because we all deal with conflicts differently, we all negotiate differently, we all handle situations differently, and every time you have a new group of people who are going to participate in this, you they react to their roles differently, they react to the situation differently, and sometimes it's also very dependent on what other people do, that people react according to that, um, to those actions. So um, we haven't had that situation before, but it was interesting to see that take place because it, it indicates that the president really got into his role and he was really taking it seriously and was trying to deal with the situation the best he can given the information that he was able to get. It's a very different way to learn negotiation skills. It's not like sitting in a classroom or reading a book about negotiation. It looked to me like, I came on the second morning and it looked to me like people are given the roles and then they're sort of let loose to figure out what works and doesn't work. Is that true? And then is there a way for you all to debrief what's working and what's not working in terms of how people play their role? Uh, that is true. We What we give them is their role and their objectives of what they're trying to achieve. So it is up to the individual to figure out what are the best ways that they need to do to um, come up with those objectives. And they have to strategize, they have to negotiate with one another in order to get what it is that they are trying to, whatever their goal is, and they're trying to achieve that. So they have to figure out how they're going to negotiate with one another in order to get what it is they want. And they quickly realize that in order for them to be successful in terms of achieving their goal, they have to get up and negotiate with another, collaborate with one another, and strategize with one another in order to play their role properly. They cannot, s it's, this is not a computer game that you sit in front of a screen and just not interact with anybody because you cannot get anything done. Just an ex example, if you are um, a firm, maybe a some small company within a krona, and you're trying to get money from the bank in order to um, start your business and improve on your business, you have to get up and go to the bank, um, the participants are playing the bank, and negotiate with them and ask them that you want a loan and why you're going to need that loan and you're going to negotiate the interest rate that they're going to give you with that loan so that you can get that money from them and then you can start your business and and this is the same true for not just the local thing we have the different government uh players who are playing there so the ministry of uh, defense will have even negotiation with the uh, US we have a participant who plays the role of the US and they have to go and negotiate with them and and figure out how are they going to convince 
the U.S. that they want money so that they can up, upgrade their military standards or whatever it is that they're trying to achieve. So they definitely have to learn what it is that they, what it is their goal is, and how and what they need to do to try to achieve that goal. Noor Kadar of the U.S. Institute of Peace Sense Training Program talking with Suzanne Kreider. While she says you can't just stare at a computer all the time, a sophisticated computer program does make this simulation and negotiation possible. Suzanne also talked with Nicole Whalen, who helps train the simulation participants. Nicole, we're standing here in front of one of the computers. Tell us how the computer software works. Okay. So right now we are in the area with all the firms. So all these, there's about... I guess 31 firms around us right now. And the firms break down into two categories, those that have to stick straightly with industry and those that have farmland and are available to take part in agricultural um, activities. And with agricultural activities comes a narcotic trade. So there's two different types of firms that you can be. Um, and uh, you know, not all firms succeed. As one in front of us, he's, he's trying to get out of $400 million. <laughs> In, in debt and others are succeeding very well. If you look at this computer right here, he has a lot of, of spikes on his graph and that would coincide with planning season and my best get is that he's in the narcotic trade with such account balances spiking like that. How this all works with the firms is that they have periods and each period represents one month in the time of Sacrona and we don't tell them this because we want them to catch on but each period, you know, it starts out about six minutes and as they get more acclimates the game and they get more proficient navigating throughout the this, uh, simulation we speed the time up so I might go down to four minutes by the end of it and things change every period prices are changing capacity production the, I mean everything changes variable costs and so they have to constantly be updating and looking at what they're producing their production rate the cost at which they're producing to see if they're having um, you know, competitive goods in the marketplace because there's also import prices that they have to compare against and they're really learning and a lot of these um, participants might not come from an economic background so it's it's a lot of information thrown at them at once. In addition to the economic indicators, does the software talk about social indicators? Yes, so there is one page that is available that's all the statistics and it's all basically all the information, social, economic, political, you know, violent crime, everything that is available for every player in the Sacrona model, but the firms typically ignore that. <laughs> they have so much other information to be paying attention to, and they, they don't quite care about how education is doing or unemployment is doing for the country. They just care about making money. And um, they are given roles, and their roles, you know, as we talked about earlier, might have um, a clan-based tied to it and so they have to stick within their clan when they're doing economic opportunities and interactment. I think the only social indicator they look at would be violent crime because that directly affects um, their theft cost. And when their theft costs get really high, they might go over and complain to the minister and something might change there. What roles are included in the simulation for caring about social indicators, educational indicators, and how do those roles interact with the business sector? So we have our local aims as one of the players, and the, our local aims is one of our local NGO actors, and they are able to do um, micro loans and even larger loans. So they might, the, one of the local aims might come over and say, "Hey, employment's looking really bad. I'll give you, 
this much money, I'll give you this loan if you invest in this industry that's labor intensive. So there is interplay in all aspects of it. And although it might not be obvious when they're, they're first learning, and it's not evident because they have so much information just with the technical information on how to use the software and navigate with, through the simulation, they haven't quite seen the bigger picture, but it's coming together. Let's go over to one of these screens, and if you could just tell us what's on the screen. There's a lot of information. It's just one computer screen. Stay, you can say, we're just going to describe the screen. So, Nicole, describe what's on the screen right now. Okay, so the main screen, it's you'll see um, national economic, economic indicators. Or these are just macroeconomic indicators um, in the front, the, the top right, and then you'll see a main graph of the net income and account balance. You'll see loan statuses. You'll see cash transfer queues. You'll see a main announcement page at the bottom where all participants can share it's kind of like an email. They can either make announcements publicly or privately. Um, and this is constantly updating. And every period, it's going to change. So this is the main page. And then at the top bar is where they have all the options to, you know, drop-down menus where they can look at reports, where they can transfer money to offshore accounts, or they can buy militia. They can um, start investing in different firms through the goods and services. They can have their production page, which is kind of their bookkeeping page for their, their for their firm so that they can track their capacity, their production rate, their quantity sold. I mean, it's very intricate and it goes into extreme detail and it's as lifelike as we can possibly make it right now. I'm looking at the computer screen, I'm getting all this information and then what's going to prompt me to go have a conversation with somebody? Well, um, Matt here is the computer screen we're looking at and his industry is actually doing quite well if you see how high his account balance is right now. And we might want to look into what is he investing in and is how, how has he managed to do so well. My name is Matthew Fargo. I live in Washington, D.C. I'm a master's student at Georgetown University and an intern at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. I play uh, the CEO of Dorazella Trading Company. I'm a businessman in the simulation. What kind of business do you do? I own livestock, textiles, air transport, trade wholesaling, things like that. If there are 60 people, how many people have you interacted with in the simulation? Well, I'm part of a trading block with my, uh, my fellow Daras, or Dara people, and we've talked to our representative in government, we've talked to the president and a couple of the foreign ministers, but I'd say only around 10. What's been most frustrating? Well, a couple of my compatriots are in the poppy growing business, and I think that uh, has brought a criminal element to our region of this fictitious country, and we continue to lose millions of dollars every month in theft costs that we've been so far unable to eliminate. What's your strategy to alleviate that? Well, I'm thinking today we might have to try and subsidize the poppy growing um, in an effort to remove the criminal elements from our region, uh, in addition to going back to the government and trying to increase police revenues in this area. And hopefully that will put a dent in our theft costs, and maybe we'll even have to pay more taxes in order to achieve it, but I think it might be worth it at this point. What's the plan for subsidizing? Well, they probably make a few million uh, dollars a season on their poppy growing, so... Fortunately, um, the trading block I'm in has a couple completely legitimate business uh, men such as myself, and I think that we will be able to cover their losses of not planting opium and instead planting things like grain and fruits, um, at least for a few seasons to see if it's working. 
it's really interesting. Give people a visual. What do you see in the room right now? Well, there are two rooms, and there are about 30 computers in each. There is one room with the businessmen, the banks, and an NGO from the international community that is interested in helping develop the country. And in the other room, there are several tables of the National Assembly, uh, international organizations like the UN, and uh, an international corporation called Megacore that has its own interests at heart in this, uh, in this conflict. Are you relegated to this room? You can't go over to the international NGO room? No, we're allowed to walk around it at will if we so choose. What are the rules of engagement? Well, each player is given a background sheet on their character, and they're asked to role-play as closely as possible. And so my character is told that he cares more about the Dara people than anything else, even at the expense of business. And so my main goal has been to support my fellow Dara businessmen and to only um, use our Dara bank uh, instead of the central bank for loans and things like that. But... Um, there are a couple other ethnic groups that my character is not a big fan of and believes has some you know, unsavory history in our, our country, uh, not so recent past. And so, Do you have a security guard? Because that sounds kind of scary. My opium-growing colleagues hire militia to watch their fields, and initially um, I hired militia as well to try and reduce theft costs, but it appears like that uh, as that did not have an effect, and so I think they were only useful in guarding illicit and not licit business ventures. Is this like monopoly, like you get a certain amount of money at the beginning, and how much money did you get? In a way, yes. Um, some of the businesses start with, uh, the businesses start with vastly different amounts of money. I started with $100 million in liquid assets and about $10 million in capital assets, and I've developed that to about $200 million in capital assets, and I have about $70 million in liquid assets at the moment, but um, a couple of the other businessmen started with something on the order of $500 million, and I know a few started with only $10 million in cash, and so it's been interesting to see how different blocks will <coughs> work together to try and um, maximize their profits. Matthew, when you go back to work on Thursday... How is this experience going to impact the way you negotiate your work? Well, I think it'll make me hopefully think of the other situations not directly involved in my negotiation that might have an impact on what I'm trying to achieve. I think that remembering that we're a small piece of a puzzle is, is probably the biggest takeaway for me. Suzanne Kreider with Matthew Fargo, a grad student at Georgetown University, playing the role of a businessman in the peace-building simulation put on by the U.S. Institute of Peace in the spring of 2012. We'll hear more from participants in this SENSE training that is our spotlight today on Peace Talks Radio. We'll also talk with a real working diplomat a little later on when we continue after this break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, with all of our episodes going back to 2002, available to be heard online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Suzanne Kreider, who in the spring of 2012 attended a training exercise put on by the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C. The training is called SENSE, which stands for Strategic Economic Needs and Security Exercise. Forty to sixty people participate by taking on roles of business leaders, government officials, security officers, non-governmental representatives, and the like. And in three days, they work in a fictional world, Sacrona, a struggling state emerging from years of war and still vulnerable to violence. As some of the participants have said, it's not unlike Afghanistan in the early 2000s. A sophisticated computer program sets up the parameters of resources and circumstances. When one player makes one move in the game, it affects others. Parties have to negotiate to bring economies and quality of life into balance. Suzanne Kreider talked with some of the players to learn how it works and what they hope to learn and apply to their regular lives when they return from the exercise. Could you give us your name, where you live, your job, and the role that you're playing? Uh, My name is Jay Bacher. I live in Chesapeake Beach, Maryland. Uh, I'm a consultant for Booz Allen Hamilton, and I'm playing the role of a businessman. What business do you work for in Sacrona? Uh, Shamba Farms. I'm probably one of the largest uh, agricultural businesses uh, in the country, but uh, I have I've diversified into a lot of different things uh, uh, to include forest and lumber products, uh, a little bit of opium, a little bit of marijuana, those types of things. Tell us about Sacrona. Uh, it's a failed state, which means it's a, it's a country that uh, is pretty much uh, dysfunctional. And um, the uh, international community has come together to try to uh, put it back, to basically help them put it back together again. It's a multi-ethnic state. This is the second day of a three-day simulation. What happened on day one? Uh, well, first you start out to learn how to, how to play the game. Uh, it's a, uh, it takes a couple of hours and a little bit of a background briefing on the country itself. Um, and then we, have a, we had a practice session to kind of get the feel for how the, the program works. And then we have a full-scale simulation, which we're right in the middle of right now. If you sell opium and drugs, how do other people in the simulation feel about that? How are they responding to you? Well, it's a role-playing game, so uh, uh, those people that are uh, benefiting from the, the sale of those drugs are, are very uh, positively uh, uh, affected by it, and uh, those that are not in the international community are not. So, uh, uh, again, we're all playing roles, so uh, I have allies and I have enemies. What kinds of pressure or influence are the quote-unquote enemies applying to you? Probably the biggest thing that the uh, the central government does is they look for offshore accounts and they try to uh, if they find offshore accounts they they seize the money. Uh, the other thing they do is uh, uh, work to increase uh, police presence in the countryside. Uh, but uh, again, all of this is a lot of this is is ethnic based. So uh, you know, my own ethnic group police are going to look the other way. But you know, if they're from another ethnic group, they won't. What kind of skills are you learning in terms of negotiating or influencing others? I think, I think the, uh, the most effective thing that we've done here is that uh, uh, I, I've formed an alliance with three fellow businessmen of the same ethnic group. And when four 
people go to talk to somebody at one time instead of one. I think that it's uh, uh, much more persuasive. How did you build that alliance? Because it seems like maybe some of them would be competitors. Well, well, we're role-playing again, and once again, and we're, we're all the same ethnic group, so uh, uh, we don't really, uh, I, I'm mostly into agricultural uh, business, and there's only, and one of the three others that I'm allied with is also an agricultural guy, but uh, because the uh, our roles demand uh, that we uh, advance the interests of our ethnic group, it's not really, we don't really look at it as, com- competition is like from businessmen from other ethnic groups, that would be our competition. If you could think about our listeners What's the biggest tip you would give them in terms of what you've learned through international negotiation, the challenges of all these different um, competing interests? What have you learned that could help our listeners? Uh, The biggest thing is patience uh, because it is incredibly hard work. And uh, it's easy to, to watch the news at home or read the news in the newspaper and, and to say, well, why, why is this happening faster? Why? And I tell you, you, you play this game for two or three days and you understand why things don't happen quicker, especially when it comes to uh, uh, nation building or, or even just assisting other states uh, uh, to improve uh, war, you know, warring factions, you know, getting them to come to the negotiating table. Uh, it's incredibly difficult. So I need your name, where you live, your job, and your role here in the simulation. Um, Barmak Pajmak. I'm a grant program officer managing the grant program for Afghanistan and Pakistan. I live in Fairfax, Virginia, and I'm a deputy president of uh, Sukorna Bank in this simulation. What just happened in the simulation? Well, we are trying to set up the economy and uh, revive the economy of Sukorna and uh, as bankers, we are trying to support the private sector to stand on their feet and revive the economy and provide jobs. And, you know, the unemployment rate is really high. It's currently at 54%. And, you know, recovering from the decades of war, uh, everybody needs a job and everybody needs an income. And we have 2 million people living overseas as refugees, so they are interested to come back, but we have to create an enabling environment for them to come back and, you know, enjoy their life back at home. In your role as a banker, how are you helping? We are offering quite competitive loans to people in areas that were badly affected by conflict. So trying to provide them with the means to build up their economy and their lives. What's been most frustrating, Barmak, about the simulation so far? You've been trying to help, but who's hindering you in this simulation? Well, it is playing field open to everybody right now. There are too many actors involved, and that is a hindrance, actually, because we sometimes it's very difficult to coordinate among them. People are asking, for instance, loans for uh, illegitimate uh, products, and they still don't understand the government doesn't have a regulatory framework that you know what is legitimate and what is not legitimate there are you know international actors there are local actors there are party politics involved uh, tribal politics involved all those things so makes it very difficult to operate but at the same time you know there is a a need for finances and there is a need for uh, a strong banking sector to support the economy so we are trying to do whatever is possible to support the needs of the people. What specific negotiation skills are you using in your role to help support the needs of the people? 
It really depends because uh, the needs are so different and vary from one locality to another that we have to be very flexible in terms of our what what we can offer and what we can we can uh, how we can persuade them to apply to our loans or um, negotiate good uh, rates of interest and good rates of return. So it really depends. Like <coughs> for some companies, we actually have to go and talk to the government officials and and try to make them to come and support our position and try to convince them that, you know, some for some other ap applicants, actually the economic rate of return is not the main concern, but they want to have a loan to support their own people and provide them with something and to show that politically they are a viable force and that they can attract loans from bank like our bank. So there are different factors involved. Barmak, how realistic is this simulation compared to the experiences you've had in your international work? Um, to be honest, that uh, it, it is, it's good. It's, it's realistic. There are some issues because uh, uh, sometimes I feel that you know, some technical issues, uh, issues get prominence because that is the easiest thing to relate to. And sometimes you, you ignore things like, for instance, uh, issues about tribalism and things like that is pr played out of proportion here because that's the only way that you can justify or conflict or uh, portray a conflict. Uh, so those kind of issues could be very, very different in the real, uh, real theater. Yeah. The tribal issues are more subtle in the real world? Is that what you're saying? Could be more subtle or could be worse than this. There was a pretty big event just just a minute ago in the simulation where the president of Sacrona came out and he fired two of his ministers. What? Tell us about that. Who were the ministers and what impact will that have on your bank? I really didn't get the full picture why they were fired, but there were a lot of complaints about those two ministers. The police minister was uh, both accused of uh, being incompetent and also involved, he was involved in some of those atrocities that were committed before the war, and I think he was brought to to the, to the, the cabinet because of some. Um, there was no option for the president to but to accept him, and I think now he feels um, enough secure politically to to take a bold move like that and fire the police minister. The other minister was just uh, incompetent, so it won't affect your bank that much. I hope not. For our listeners, what do you think is the most important negotiation skill that the participants are learning here? Well, they, they have to deal with an array of different actors. Like you cannot uh, follow a certain negotiation skill here. Yeah, because the people, the actors are so different from each other. They have different expectations, different roles and different backgrounds and different means. Uh, to, to either support or rather undermine you that you have to follow quite a variety of negotiation skills and deal with them and based on the knowledge that you have from them and how do you how you can relate to them like for instance with some of them I had to go and bring some party members and for but some of them I had to go and ask for government to intervene and talk or negotiate on our behalf and so the variety of different negotiation skills uh, but basically trying to be nice and to show them that we are a viable company and we can produce and we can deliver what we are saying. Bar Mark Podjarark and earlier Jay Bakker both played roles in the SENSE training exercise at the U.S. Institute of Peace in the spring of 2012. 
The future of the fictional nation of Sacrona was at stake with all of their decisions. Their moves were registered in a sophisticated computer program and had effects on other sectors and players in the game. More on this negotiation training, whose fictional nation some compared to Afghanistan, and we'll later talk with a former Afghani ambassador to Canada and France when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you'll find all our episodes going back to 2002, including this one you're hearing now, about what's known as sense training to teach negotiation skills. The U.S. Institute of Peace puts on these trainings for people seriously trying to improve their negotiation skills, either for application in international settings or some other aspect of their lives. Suzanne Kreider has more now with Noor Kadar of the USIP about the origins of this computer simulation training. It was requested by Wesley Clark, General Wesley Clark, who wanted to develop a simulation that would help um, the Bosnians um, implement the, pay, uh, the Dayton Peace Accords and help give them a tool that they could use to help them implement um, the transition that they were going through. So Ida, they asked um, the Institute for Defense Analysis, Ida, to come up with a simulation that could um, be used as as this tool. And then in 2004, we started using it with the Iraqis. Tell us more about the program of using the sense simulation in Iraq. We have a team in Iraq, and um, they have been trained by us since 2005, and they've been running sense in Iraq uh, since then. We've trained... Um, over 1,500 Iraqis to date um, from various ministries and and various parts of Iraq. Mainly, we have mainly been dealing with in Baghdad, but I've also worked a lot in the north and the different pro- provincial council members. We've uh, worked with the various ministries, NGOs, private sector, and it's a very popular uh, program in Iraq. There's a lot of demand for it, and we've had many ministries who are even willing to pay part of the the training for it, which is not a common thing that Iraqis like to do. And we realized that in order to make it a little bit more applicable to Iraq and the Iraqi um, population, uh, we wanted to implement, we wanted to add some other dimensions to it. For example, we added um, the oil sector and we expanded the the size of the country to make it a little bit more like Iraq. 
We don't say that it's exactly like Iraq because it has been used in other parts of the world, but to, to try to make it a little bit more close to what Iraqis have been going through in terms of the size of the country, the economics of it, and the oil sector and some of the um, terrorist elements in there. Noor Kedar of the U.S. Institute of Peace with our Suzanne Kreider. Former Afghan ambassador to both Canada and France, Omar Samad, didn't have the sense training exercise to learn his diplomatic skills. He was, in fact, an Afghani who was educated in the United States as a journalist, but felt called to return to Afghanistan after the 9-11 terrorist attacks of 2011. He served as a spokesman for the Afghan Foreign Ministry, before acting as the country's ambassador to first Canada and then France. Now he's back in the U.S. as the Afghanistan senior expert in residence at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and he talked with Suzanne Kreider about his career as a negotiator. Initially, when I joined the Afghan Foreign Ministry in 2001, uh, I was assigned as a spokesperson for the ministry. So I was the voice of Afghanistan's foreign policy in establishment, a very new establishment, something that had been destroyed, and we sort of picked up the pieces and tried to put it back together. So we were busy putting, uh, rebuilding an institution at the same time that I was busy representing and speaking on behalf of Af Afghanistan's uh, foreign policy establishment and new foreign policy lines post 9-11 with the new Karzai administration coming into office uh, and Afghanistan starting a whole new life. So we were at a very different place, a different time, very unique situation of a country that had totally been devastated. And so I believe that negotiations started f for me as a diplomat mostly internally within our institution, dealing with the new faces, the new people that had joined this new government from basically zero, from scratch. And so we had to start to get to know each other, to negotiate with each other, to uh, engage each other, to get to know each other, and to agree on, on certain policy issues. Externally, of course, uh, most of our work dealt with the international community. I had to play the same role uh, in regards to our relations with other countries. I had to uh, prioritize what I viewed as being national interest, for example, versus you know, personal interest or, or a group's interest or, or, or no interest whatsoever. Um, and uh, you, you had to, of course, also recalibrate mentally um, and sometimes maybe emotionally in terms of how to defend a certain position or how to push for a certain position. Uh, whereas a, as a journalist, you don't have to really do all of those issues because you're sort of nonpartisan. But uh, as a diplomat and as a negotiator, there is a certain level of partisanship involved. It seems like negotiators are always doing two very difficult things. They're presenting you know, their interests while they're trying to listen. What are you doing internally to balance those two and be really strong in both? It starts with being a very good listener, uh, but also uh, by being a good analyst, uh, by knowing uh, the, the, the subject matter. Uh, if we had to travel one day to a certain country and meet leaders of that country, you know, you had to study the country before you went there. And you had to study the leaders uh, with whom you were going to engage with um, and their policies. So you rely on a maybe a bureaucracy or a structure to feed you with that information. And in Afghanistan, the problem was that that structure did not exist. Uh, 
We had embassies, we had diplomats, we had something called the foreign ministry or defense ministry or intelligence agency, whatever you want to call it. But they were non-functional. They had become non-functional over the years because of war and conflict. So we didn't have what other countries have normally. And even to this day, uh, 10 years on, I think that some of those institutions and some of those organizations are to a some, some extent dysfunctional. Uh, a lot of people point to, to the fact that Afghanistan is a dysfunctional country, but there are reasons for that. There are very valid reasons, and there are, uh, which, which is not an excuse, of course, but it, it, it's, it's, it, it should sort of make us think as to why and then make us think about what to do about it. And so what we were trying to do back then and should, I think, continue to do is to find solutions, to, to, to find ways to, uh, to increase capacity, to build institutions, to put people who are able and skilled in positions that fit them instead of putting the wrong people in the wrong positions, which has happened quite often in Afghanistan and is the reason for some of our challenges today. And uh, I think that if you, if you have that type of m mental mapping and leadership sort of outlook, then you can translate that into practice. Ambassador Samad, what role has globalization, technology, social media played in the changing role of being a diplomat and in negotiating international relations? As I said, I come from a family of diplomats, and of course, the kind of diplomacy that I practiced um, as an ambassador in Canada for several years and then in France, and as a spokesperson for the foreign ministry before that, uh, comparatively speaking, is very different from how my father practiced his diplomatic skills and, 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 and did his job from what I remember as a child. And it's different, of course. Uh, so so I, have to, I have to deal today uh, with... Uh, the impacts of globalization uh, with all its good and bad. Uh, and I'm not just saying that it's all good or all bad. Uh, I have to put it, uh, you know, frame it within the context of what my job requires and, and, and what my country needs or what my portfolio demands. And uh, as well as how to use technology today. If, if my father had to wait for a telegram to arrive in order to get some kind of instruction from Kabul, my grandfather had to wait several days for some type of gram to arrive. Or some person, it would take weeks for them to leave Kabul, go through India, take a boat, come to Europe to deliver something. Whereas today, Everything is almost instantaneous, and 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 uh, you have to be on edge, and you have to be ready for the immediate event that could take place, or the immediate uh, response that is required, or the immediate uh, solution that you have to offer to a problem. Uh, but of course, uh, there is time when when you enter uh, negotiations. Uh, negotiations are not always instantaneous. They take time. Uh, they they need preparation. Uh, they need a lot of shuttle diplomacy, let's say, uh, and uh, they need a lot of thinking and a lot of knowledge. And you tap into all the pools of knowledge that exist because no one diplomat or no one negotiator knows everything about any given issue. 
So today, when in uh, someone who deals with Afghanistan as a negotiation subject matter uh, has to rely on dozens of experts in so many different fields in order to then go sit at the table and start talking to another side. I mean, it's as, it has become that complex. But we also have the benefit of having so much information and so much knowledge that is accessible now that wasn't so easily accessible back then. Cross-cultural issues really complicate negotiations as well. So you were the Afghan ambassador to Canada and then to France. What kinds of issues came up in each of those countries that were especially challenging or different based on the culture? And how did you learn how to adapt your style to the different cultures? I had the added advantage of having been exposed to Western societies, Western languages, as I s- mentioned to you earlier, uh, because I grew up partially in, in a Western society, but each Western society is different from the other. I cannot compare Canada to the United States or France to the UK or, or Italy. Um, so what a diplomat does, first of all, is get to know his or her environment. And that environment means not only history, but it means society, it means economy, and everything that, you know, makes up a country as complex as it is. And no one should claim to know everything about a country or be an expert in anything. I think that, you know, the boundaries of knowledge are beyond our reach, and, and, and it's a good thing. So, so what you have to do is, uh, you know, sort of strengthen your knowledge base, then then your job is to connect. And, and that's where cr- cross-culturalism comes into play, where you, using your cultural baggage and whatever makes you culturally ident- identifiable, are seen and perceived by the other side as being different. And of course, you go in and trying to tell people that you're not so different, actually, that we have a lot to share and a lot in common. And a diplomat's job is actually to create those bonds and those bridges and those connectivities and those areas where we come together, whether as human beings or as entities, whether national entities or cultural entities or ethnic entities, whatever it might be. And so you have to explain. And I come from a, cu- from a culture, from a society and from a background that is already complex. Afghanistan, you know, is... Uh, a multi-ethnic society, multi-lingual society. Uh, it's uh, it, it has five thousand years of history. It's an old, ancient land. It has gone through a lot, and so you have to explain that to people. And Canada was extremely interested in what was happening in Afghanistan because Afghanistan became Canada's number one foreign policy issue when, while I was there as ambassador, and I made a point of being the voice in the face of Afghanistan. And so I engaged the Canadians to the, to the extent that I could at all levels, at all levels, from grassroots to the top of the government. And I think that that's I, what, what I believe is a diplomat's job. But while doing so, you also bring up issues. You deal with all kinds of events that take place on a daily basis, good and bad, policy issues, decisions that have to be taken, strategic decisions as well as tactical decisions and a diplomat's job a negotiator's job is of course uh, working within the confines of another country is to respect the limits that exist without stepping overboard but offer the viewpoint that is necessary.
Ambassador Samad, I wanted to ask you who some of the experts in diplomacy and international relations are who you really respect. But I'm also curious what you learned from your father about diplomacy. Uh, probably not enough. Uh, I should have probably learned much more, but um, I, 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 I still am in learning mode uh, and will continue to be. Uh, but uh, I, I believe that uh, I've always been hist- uh, fascinated by history and, and historical figures. Um, and especially figures who had to deal with complexities and crises and conflict and challenges and how they dealt with it. Uh, some dealt with it, with those uh, adversities um, successfully and some didn't. And so I think that what I have done over, over the years is, is look at these figures and, and, and what they faced and how they went through. And, and I'm still amazed by how difficult it is to be a leader. It, is, it, it really is a challenging task. And I think that the general public that really doesn't sometimes appreciate that as much as they should. Uh, I think there's so much pressure on leaders nowadays, whether they are political leaders or whether they are you know, like, uh, leaders in the private sector. Or there is a lot of pressure. So you, you have to build character. And so I've looked at character as well. I've tried to see what character traits make a good leader or a bad leader and so that brings me to my own family and my and my father and and then my both my grandfathers who both were diplomats actually at some point but one was a career diplomat and the other wasn't um i saw char- character traits uh that i hope have impacted me i think that integrity is very important i think that Pur- being purposeful in life, having a purpose, a cause, is important. Believing in good and bad, uh, believing in doing good versus avoiding the bad is important. Uh, for others, for your country, for your nation, for your community, for your family. Um, I, I believe that I, I've learned that in negotiations you have to be fair and you have to be just. I think those are some characteristics. And, and I know that some people may think, well, diplomats are probably not the fairest of people or, uh, or, or negotiators sometimes try to get the best deal out of something. And it's true. They do. But at the same time, if you come at the, at the negotiating table or as a diplomat, you give a sense to the other side that you understand them and that you have a sense of justice and a sense of equality uh, and fairness, then you already have at some level succeeded in starting negotiations on the right foot. Tell us a success story because you've been part of many important delegations. You've worked as an ambassador. Tell us a story where you were successful in negotiating uh, competing interests. There are several and I don't want to take credit for what I may have done but I think that as member of a team uh, one can contribute in one way or the other. But as a member of a team, uh, I think that one of the toughest negotiations I've had was in France. As I arrived, there was an issue of illegal Afghans who were arriving on French soil without any legal documents, who had fled Afghanistan, had gone through hell, uh, basically trying to reach Western Europe or Northern Europe um, through Iran, Turkey, through Greece, 
uh, with no money, sometimes with families, sometimes alone, sometimes underage. And uh, and when in 2009 I arrived, you know, this was an issue in French politics where uh, the French government had tried to expel most of these and send them back to Afghanistan. Uh, and the way they were doing it to us didn't seem as being the right way and being in line with international obligations. So I had to step in and uh, try to ag- to ar- agree with the French that this can be done differently. And I think that we were able to agree on some issues to treat these people differently, to give them a chance, and to not um, and to make sure that they understand their rights under French law and under international law, which was not the case before, in my opinion, and then became the case. So I think that we were able to, on both sides, agree to a better mo- modalities for dealing with uh, people who had no documents and who were there illegally. And you've mentioned listening, but other than listening and analyzing as two key skills, what's one more skill that you used, you can see, that you were using in that process that was very helpful? Communicating. Uh, you, you need to be an effective communicator, and of course listening is a part of that, but, but listening is just one part, and, and the, the rest has to do with the, the, the analyzing, the, the processing that goes in, in, into play, the you also are not you know uh, all by yourself. As I said, you you need to also know who to to share that information with, and who with with whom should you reach a certain conclusion, a certain decision, and then how to convey that decision or how to convey that viewpoint. Uh, and so the conveying also is a major part of that. So communication overall, processing and uh, making sure that you've covered all the bases. Former Afghan ambassador to both Canada and France, Omar Samad, is now Afghanistan's senior expert in residence at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and he talked with our Suzanne Kreider. At peacetalksradio.com, you can read partial transcripts, see photos, link to other resources, hear the whole program again, and find out more about the sense negotiation training of the U.S. Institute of Peace, all at peacetalksradio.com. Peacetalksradio.com is also where you can go to sign up for a free monthly newsletter or subscribe to our podcast. Importantly, it's where you can also make any sized contribution to Good Radio Shows Incorporated, the nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your public radio station. So if you think it's a good idea to reserve a slice of the media landscape for talk about peace and conflict resolution, consider a tax-deductible donation. Support comes from listeners like you and from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider and all of us at Peace Talks Radio, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.